0: Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we are returning to our series in Isaiah, and we've been away from it for a little bit, but we're coming back in this morning. And, and as we do so, um, uh, the song by Queen, Bohemian Rhapsody, is iconic, isn't it? Um, you're probably going to challenge me on that later, but I think it is a song like no other. I'm not going to sing it for us, um, but it, nobody really knows what the song is about. Um, the band were never really forthcoming on, on, on what it was about, but it is full of drama. Uh, there is great emotion in the song, there is life, there is death, there is desperation. It builds up to a great crescendo of, of madness and angst. And then the very end of it, do you remember the very end of it? It fades away and the very last words are, nothing really matters. Nothing really matters me, any way the wind blows. Now, all the energy, all that sense of importance is undone, nothing matters. Uh, we're at the beginning of December, and the volume on Christmas is already pretty loud, isn't it? It's going to get turned up even more in the coming weeks. Um, uh, Christmas is everywhere, but I think as we, as we look closely at what is happening, uh, we will see something of that Bohemian Rhapsody story. Um, Something of great hype, of great enthusiasm, there will be lights and celebrations, but if we look really closely, we will see that underneath there is a gnawing sense that nothing really matters. You see it in the Christmas TV ads. I don't know if you've seen the the advert for Walker's Crisps this Christmas time. Has anyone seen that? Um, I'll I'll tell you about it. Um, What what happens is um, there's a kind of series of scenes of Christmas disruption the stress of people coming together for Christmas. Uh, the, The advert leans into tricky Christmas moments, and then it offers a solution. What is a solution to resolve interpersonal conflict? Packet of crisps. The only thing made for sharing. A packet of crisps. That is the answer to relationship breakdown. It's trivializing, isn't it? It tells the story, doesn't it, that beneath the noise and the passion... Nothing really matters. You scroll on your social media feed, if that's something you do, and you you scroll through and you'll see there'll be an an insight into something horrific. Uh, A a glance maybe about something about the war in the Middle East, and and there'll be a a great tragedy that is being put before you, and and yet before the weight of it can really land, you come to the next thing and something utterly ridiculous is put in front of you. A cat video. Um... (laughs) The the algorithm of our social media is designed to entertain and keep our attention. It's not designed to connect us with anything weighty, with anything that matters more than filling our empty moments, spinning um, our life into that narrative that under all the bells and whistles, nothing really matters to me. And here we are. Sunday the 3rd of December gathered in this place and I'm afraid to say we've not come together to be entertained uh, or to be distracted from, from the stuff of life. We have come together to look at things that will matter, that do matter more than anything else we can fathom. We've kind of carved out this space in our week to look at things that really matter or at least things that should really matter to me. So let me pray for us as we look at this passage of God's word together. Almighty God, we acknowledge and confess that you are the Lord, the creator of all things, the holy God, as we have sung, and a God who has spoken, and we have your word here for us to look at. Our Lord God, I pray that this would matter very much to us this morning, because we ask you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our passage this morning um, read for us, Um, thanks to the boys who did that. One of them's gone, I think. Um, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5 to 19. Um, It really helps us as we're going through Isaiah to to locate um, the the passages within all the messages that go on around it. Um, And it's really helpful to see that what we're looking at today has a foundation that really started back in chapter 9. Uh, uh, back in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, we heard about light that shines into darkness. Verse 2 speaks about the light shining into deep darkness. Verse 3 of chapter 9 speaks about light that brings an explosion of invincible happiness. Now verse 4 of chapter 9 speaks about the light smashing the yoke of oppression. That the bondage of death being shattered by the coming light. The light is coming. That's the message in Isaiah 9. And it's coming. And it's all going to come about Because, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. God's king is coming. That's the message in Isaiah 9. He's coming. He's a king like no other. He's going to reign over a kingdom with no end. Now, his kingdom, his coming kingdom will be a place where there is no pain and no oppression and no suffering and no tears and no death. And he's going to establish his kingdom, it says, with justice and righteousness. This is the real answer to relationship breakdown. The coming kingdom of this great king. Not a packet of crisps, uh, but the son who is given. And uh, and how the the following chapters then work after that great promise is put in at the beginning of chapter 9. Well, it works like this. um, After that promise about this reign of the righteous king. Uh, there are two messages of judgment on pride, the pride of Israel and the pride of Assyria. And then when we get to chapter 11, we again look at a promise of this coming king, the reign of the righteous king. You see, this great kingdom that is promised is not the world as we know it. not the world as Isaiah knew it either. And a sandwich between these great promises of this future kingdom are messages that confront what is wrong in the world. And with that promise of what is going to come that is right, we can now explore the things that have gone wrong and what the Lord is doing about it. In our passage today, I think we'll see three things. We'll see that God holds all things, God holds all accountable, and God holds all hope. The First of all, God holds all things in his hands. As as we begin to look at what this says, let me just flag something up that we'll come to later. Um, Isaiah is speaking these messages to people who live in the land of Judah, in Jerusalem particularly. Uh, We saw when we last looked at this in chapter 9 verse 8, that the message there was not about Judah, it was about Israel. The people of Judah are listening in. And and again, if you look how our passage begins in verse 5 of chapter 10, the subject of the message is, the Assyrian. Now the message is not for Assyria. It's about Assyria, but it is for Judah. We have to think, how will the people of Judah listen to a message about Assyria? And and, and as we think about that, let me remind you of what we saw in chapter 7, where we met King Ahaz, the king of Judah at that time. King Ahaz is in a real dilemma. You see, there's a lot of fighting in the world, lots of war. Um, Judah is under attack. And the problem in the world is Assyria, a great superpower, um, eating other nations for breakfast. And the world is terrified about Assyria. So some of the smaller nations are kind of clubbing together in order to resist Assyria when it comes. And some of those nations want, um, want Judah to join their little club. Um, and Ahaz isn't quite sure about whether he wants to do that or not. Uh, Ahaz's own idea is, why don't we ask for Assyria to come and help us? Now, why don't we get the biggest bully to deal with all the other bullies? So the talk on the streets in Jerusalem is there is war at the borders. There is rumour of war everywhere. Should we go to Assyria to help us or not? We'll come back to that. Uh, But chapter 10, verse 5 is is shocking. Uh, God describes Assyria like this. He calls them the rod of my anger in whose hand is the club of my wrath. What does that mean? Well, verse 6 explains, I send him, Assyria, against a godless nation. I dispatch him against the people who anger me to seize the loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. The godless nation is Judah. The word for nation here. It is a word that is usually used for all other nations of the world apart from Judah. But it's a way of saying Judah has lost its way. Judah have forgotten who they are, not just lost their way, they've become godless. They've they've kicked against everything they've ever known about God and assimilated into the ways of the pagans around them. And we see repeatedly in the Bible that what happened to Judah is a replication of what happens to everyone. They represent the lostness and rebellion of people. And God's response is anger. And I remember the promise in chapter 9 of the coming king. That the coming king is going to bring in a kingdom of peace. And that coming king is going to bring in a kingdom like that because the world has forgotten what it was made for. And we were made for love, made to love God and love one another. But we've made a whole heap of mess. And God doesn't sit idly by. God's righteous anger is raised by all that breaks and ruins his beautiful world. You see, his anger isn't like our anger. His anger is not arbitrary and uncontrolled. It is God's settled disposition against wickedness. Now, whenever we hear that God is angry, we can be very sure that it is caused by something that is evil indeed. And his anger is active. He acts to clean the world of wickedness. His, his anger acts to open the way for eternal justice and peace to come. And Judah has provoked his anger. In fact, verse 6 really is echoing a warning we heard back in chapter 8. Uh, chapter 8 has this, this, this strange bit where Isaiah has a son and he's told to call his son Mahashalal Hashbaz. Uh, and the, the son's name is a message of warning, a, a warning of imminent destruction. A warning to Judah not to go to Assyria for help, but to go to the Lord. Well, that name, Mahashal hashbaz the Shalal and the Baz, um, is echoed in verse 6. It's the same warning, reminding them of that warning about Assyria. Assyria now who is sent by the Lord to destroy. Verse 5 has something of the sense of a of a kind of gigantic comet smashing into the world. It it, it shows to us the devastating reality of the living God. Just listen again to what it says. We're going to press into this for a moment. The Assyrian, the rod of my anger. The the Assyrian nation has been around for hundreds of years at this point. Um, By Isaiah's time, it has been growing in power And as any nation and empire grows in power, there is a whole load of political intrigue with that. And there is controversy and wrestling for power. There have been some assassinations. There have been some deals. In Isaiah's time, the king of Assyria is Tiglath-Pileser III. He's a real dude. A phenomenal character. This is him. Notice in his hand he is holding a staff of power, isn't it? Isaiah 10.5 says it's not Assyria. Assyria's king who holds the staff. It's the Assyria, who is the staff held by the Lord. But here he is, um, Tiglath-Pileser III. Um, he, he reorganized the empire under his rule. He kind of centralized power. And then he goes really big. He, he expands the borders massively. The territory of the empire more than doubles under his reign. The Assyrian empire, with great history, with with culture, with a worldview, with with technologies advancing, with, with its whole kind of approach to life, its whole strategy of war, and all the politics involved in that, and the mechanism of government, and all the different personalities, and every single part of that, the Lord says, is a rod in my hand. The mighty empire to the Lord, it's like picking up a stick, throwing it where he wants to, moving it according to his purpose. Can't water this down to make it easier to swallow. This is the living God who is most powerful. That the Lord who exercises an exhaustive and meticulous governance over everything. Possible for us to really grasp how 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 the how that works, how the involvement of the Lord in the the detail of the whole Assyrian complex, a work together in order to achieve exactly what the Lord wanted. There are kind of like like millions of different threads in a great tapestry. Billions of decisions, billions of kind of chance things and and influences that stretch over centuries. We we can maybe get a grasp of it if we asked ourselves the question, uh, why did Germany invade Poland in 1939? Some historians among us might want to offer some views on that. There are libraries full of books exploring that question and and really to understand that question you have to take into account the whole of modern European history and if you want to think about whole of modern European history you really need to understand all of pre pre pre-modern European history that it's all been built upon and and then you might want to look at the particular personalities involved in that one decision let's see how Hitler was a was a product of his time and he was a unique leader and his rise to power coincided and, and was enabled with a whole host of other factors. So many factors involved in one decision to invade. Now we're told in Isaiah 10 verse 5 that when Assyria was sent to attack Judah, they're sent by the Lord who orchestrated every part. For the Lord, that was impossibly easy. It's like picking up a stick. And we are confronted here in this text with the living God. God who is more real than our words can express, who is more significant than anything we can imagine. God who cannot be neatly contained. Now, if we really hear what the Bible says about him, we will be shocked and we will be appalled. And perhaps, if we really hear, we might come to realise we're not meeting some imagination. We're not meeting something concocted by people. We encounter the one true living God who is inexpressible, who is incomprehensible, ineffably sublime. God holds all things in his hands. Uh, there are huge problems with saying that, of course. Uh, you, you're probably thinking about some of them already. If you're not, then the passage um, deals with some of them. Uh, the, the next thing that we see is God holds all people accountable for what they do. You see, we're shown in this passage that the God who orchestrates, governs, and wields Assyria like a stick, so they do exactly what he intends for them, also holds the same Assyrians to account for doing those things. Look at me at verse 7. It says, but this is not what he, what the Assyrians intend. This is not what he has in mind. Assyria will invade Judah. But the Lord and Assyria have different reasons, different intentions in that same action. Now, what is in the heart of Assyria? Uh, Literally, verse 7 says, his heart does not think like this. We're going into his heart in verse 7. What is in his heart? It says, his purpose is to destroy. And again, literally, that is, to destroy is in his heart. You see, Assyria isn't, isn't worshipping the Lord God. It's not obeying the Lord. It's not doing what the Lord wants consciously. Assyria does what Assyria wants, what is in his heart. And in his heart it is to destroy. Now we see that Assyria has massive self-confidence. you kind of got to argue at this point in history, it's, it's kind of justified. Verse 8, he says, his commanders are like kings, And it's true. No one can stand before the the sweep of the Assyrian armies. They've already trampled over nations. He speaks to himself about his victories, these places, Calno and Carchemish and Hamath and Arpad and Samaria and Damascus. They've toppled like dominoes. Verse 10, he says, As my hand sees the kingdoms of the idols, kingdoms whose images excel those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images as I dealt with Samaria and her idols? Do, do you see the logic here? Um, Steve, of Arsenal won their last few league games? Obviously. There we go, obviously. So, so Arsenal Football Club have won their last few league games. So after doing that, they're going to be feeling pretty confident. Um, now, now imagine that after dispatching those Premier League teams this afternoon, Arsenal's going to travel up um, to St Neots Town and play St Neots Town Football Club. How will they feel about that game? They're not going to be phased, are they, about the outcome? You know, Arsenal's day job is beating the best in the country. They're not going to be phased about playing St Neots Town Football Club. That's what a is saying. It's saying we easily beat these other places. So Judah, not going to be a problem. We're the best. And because they are the best, they have it in their hearts to destroy. And notice that it's the gods of these nations that couldn't stand before Assyria. The idols of the nations couldn't protect their own. And Assyria says Jerusalem has its fair share of idols. That's true. It's taken on all these images of false gods and made them its worship. And Assyria looks at them and uses a derogatory word to describe them. Uh, Calls them the non-entity gods. It's a bit ruder than that. Um, Assyria is is right when it says these idols, they they offer about as much protection as as an umbrella before a tsunami. But but the twist is what goes on in the heart of Assyria. See, Assyria, as it makes these bold kind of statements, it's not saying, Assyria are not saying our gods, the gods of Assyria are stronger than the gods of these other places. That, that is what they think. That is their worldview. That's, that's how they, they saw the world. They thought their gods were stronger than the other gods. But they're not saying that. That They're saying we are stronger than their gods. That they don't see a difference between themselves and the deities. Uh, even in verse 13, Assyria is saying, like a mighty one. A mighty one. That is, in Isaiah one twenty four how the Lord God described himself. That's how Assyria thinks of himself. He is a God over all these places. You see, verse 12 takes us again into his heart. God looking into the heart of the Assyrians. And what he finds is the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. Assyria is self-assured and self-obsessed and self-seeking. Again, we we hear what he's saying in verse 13 and 14. We again get an understanding of his heart. We see, first of all, in verse 13, he believes he's self-made. His power, his wisdom, it's all come from himself. It's his own, and so he alone is responsible for how he uses it. By the strength of my hand, he says, by my wisdom. Of course, that's kind of nonsense, but the, the important thing is to say, what does he do with his with his superior might yes he is the strongest nation around what does he do with that well this is what he says i removed the boundaries of nations i plundered their treasures like a mighty one i subdued their kings and then he gives a little picture to explain it in verse 14 he says as one reaches into a nest so my hand has reached for the wealth of nations as people gather abandoned eggs So I gathered all the countries, not one flapped a wing or opened its mouth to chirp. Saying It is so easy, so simple. It's like like going collecting eggs, like a child can go and collect the eggs from the hens. It's not difficult, so easy, it's it's like abandoned eggs. There's not even a parent bird to, to kick up a fuss. These eggs, they're so weak and they're so vulnerable. And there's the heart of Assyria. When he comes across something weaker than him, his instinct is to take and not to protect. Simply because he is stronger, that's his logic. Because he's stronger, he thinks he can use his strength to take from the weak. That's the Assyrian heart. Using his strength to abuse others just because he can. No one can stop him. He acts like God. He's unaccountable. He's unanswerable. I wonder if the Assyrian approach to life is appealing to us. If we could, would we? If if we could get away with it, would we? Now, we haven't obviously got the might and power of the Assyrian Empire, but we all have a responsibility to look at what we've been given, Our, our abilities, our resources, the opportunities that are in our hands, and ask, do we use what we have To serve others or to serve ourselves? And it's like, again, the the biblical work ethic. In in Ephesians 4, it says, you shouldn't steal, which is a good rule for life, isn't it? Don't steal because it harms others. But then it says, no, no, more than that, we should work, not simply so that we can serve ourselves. We work so that we don't need to steal and so we might have something with which to serve others. Now, what do we do with what we have? With our time, do we use it for ourselves or for others? Uh, With our things, with our smartphones, if you have one, what what do you use it for? Uh, Just because we can, just because we can get away with it, just because no one is watching, does it mean we should? Now, Like with ancient Assyria, the Lord is concerned with what happens in our hearts. He sees our hearts. And for Assyria, they will be held to account. That's what verse 12 says. When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart. But the, the question still nags a little bit. Like, how how does, does it work? It, God holds Assyria like a rod in his hand. God uses Assyria to accomplish his purposes. So how can he hold Assyria responsible for doing what God intended? I think we've been shown that the answer in part is because Assyria has different reasons for the same action. It's what is in the heart of Assyria that is being measured and found wanting. Again, though, we're going to, we're going to say, but, but how, how, how does that work? Now, how can the Lord and Assyria have different intention in the same action? Now, if we ask the question, why does Assyria invade Judah? The answer is, because the Lord wills it for his purposes. And because Assyria wills it for their purposes. And those, both, those things are true. And they're not competing intentions. It's not a bit of one and a bit of the other. It is 100% of both. We don't really know how that works, to be honest. And what we do know is that the Lord absolutely controls these events. That he is holy and righteous in all that he does. And we know that Assyria is doing exactly what it wants. It is free to do what it wants, and what it wants in these events is sinful and makes them guilty before God. We don't really know how it works. Nobody really knows how those things come together except God alone, because God is only God, and we're not. God is capable to do what we cannot conceive because he's God and he's not us. John Piper suggests that if we human beings are able to handle radioactive uranium to produce useful energy without being contaminated by deadly radiation, then how much more can the infinitely wise God handle the deadly evil of sin without contamination to bring about his wise and holy purposes? And so in verse 15, does the axe raise itself above the person who swings it? Or the sword boast against the one who uses it? As if a rod were to wield the person who lifts it up? Or a club brandish the one who is not wood? That's the foolishness of the Assyrian heart. God uses them for a purpose. God is free to do that as sovereign creator. But Assyria doesn't see it like that. Assyria considers itself above God. That's the foolishness. The axe is made by the craftsman. The axe has its being and its usefulness from the one who made it and the one who uses it. And it is crazy for the axe to start to complain and and to say to the woodcutter, I'm tired of me doing all the chopping and you doing all the swinging. Let's swap roles. It's bonkers. But that's what's in the Assyrian heart. They want to take the place of God. And and the point is, how can you successfully fight against the one who is sovereign over your total existence? Like, um, Like the child sitting on... On his father's knee are being held up by knee as she slaps him in the face that the only way the child can reach the face is because he's lifting her up that's what Assyria does Assyria's strength and power came as a gift and they use their gift to slap God in the face they forget that even the breath they use to curse God comes from him the energy they use to rebel against God comes from him and the Lord will hold them to account Verses 16 to 19 describe the devastation that will come upon Assyria when the Lord punishes them for the pride of their heart. God holds all things. God holds all people accountable for what they do. And then thirdly, God holds all hope. This passage is difficult, um, but I think it's important that as we try and work out what to take from it, we ask what was the message for Judah? A message about Assyria, but not for Assyria, for the people of Judah. Now, why is the Lord doing all of these things? Now, that's what Judah must reflect upon. The passage isn't coming in a vacuum. Now, why is the Lord doing this? And we've already been told what his great purposes are. Back in the beginning of chapter 9, his, his great purposes. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That's the great purpose of God. That's his his zeal, the zeal of the Lord Almighty is to bring in his king, a king like no other, to reign over a kingdom with no end. A kingdom that will fill the whole world with peace and justice and righteousness. It's the world that every one of us longs for. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. That's his, his passion project. In chapter 10, verse 5, we then learn that the Lord, that the Lord with such all encompassing power that he can hold the whole assyrian empire like a stick in his hand the incomparably sovereign god with power over all things it is his passion project to bring in the kingdom and so to bring in that reign of justice and peace he must deal with the wickedness and wrong in the world and his anger is aroused by aroused injustice against judah the godless nation His anger is is raised up in justice against Assyria, full of prideful violence. His anger is raised up against all sin that has no place in the coming kingdom of peace. So what's the message for Judah? Well, First of all, there's a call to self-examination. The heart of Assyria is laid bare and held up as a mirror for Judah to examine themselves. You see, the reason the Lord is angry with Judah, we were told back in chapter 2, is because of their arrogance and their pride. Judah suffers the same species of pride that is in the heart of Assyria. Judah, in their own way, is imitating the Assyrian theology. that It's a dog-eat-dog world, and the biggest dog can eat what it likes. Use everything you have to get what you can for yourself. Don't worry about anybody harmed on the way, that's just how it all works. That's how the Assyrians live. That's how the people of Judah lived. And Judah again hears how the Lord will call to account the pride of heart. As they hear again, there is great mercy. A great mercy because Judah's already gone too far. But even now the Lord is still warning them about the danger of their pride. Now how many times do we need to be warned about the danger of our pride? I guess the Assyrian approach to life, I think it is appealing to us. To do whatever we most want. The only thing that matters is whether or not we want it. Not whether or not it's right or wrong or harms someone. The only question we ask is, can I do it? Not should I do it. Can I get away with those hateful thoughts? Can I look at those things without being caught? Can I miss giving thanks to God and live like I did it myself? Can I? I'm not asking, should I? That's the Assyrian heart. Again, John Piper says, the irony is that human autonomy feels like we have gained significance when in fact we've lost sanity. Freedom from God feels exhilarating, but it's the exhilaration of skydiving without a parachute. Now the warning again to Judah and the warning to us is don't be like the Assyrians. Examine your heart. Ask the Lord to help you examine your heart. Uh, The second thing for Judah to take is Judah should not put their hope in Assyria. you, You remember what's going on in that time of crisis? The idea on the table is maybe we send to Assyria for help. This is what you get if you send to Assyria for help. You're asking for the rod of the Lord's anger to come down harder. This nation is bent on destruction. It's like drinking petrol to get rid of a tickle in your throat. Now, if this is what Assyria is like, what hope can there be for Judah? How can there be any escape from this great destruction? There isn't any hope, is there? Assyria is so much stronger than Judah. Assyria will do what it wants with Judah. Assyria is just toppling the dominoes closer and closer and closer. It is unstoppable. There is no hope. Unless Assyria is not the ultimate and unregulated power that it claims to be. (laughs) The the Lord says, doesn't he? Um, In a single day, verse 17. A single day. When you trace the history forward, you see the Assyrians did invade. The great Assyrian armies surrounded the city of Jerusalem and all hope looked like it was lost And then in a single dramatic moment, the sovereign of all history sent them packing and the whole Assyrian empire crumbled like dust. We'll come to that when we get there. Now, what is Judah to do? Don't put your hope in Assyria. Don't put your hope in anything other than the living God. Isaiah 8, 17 says, I will wait for the Lord. I will put my trust in him. Now, for Judah, it's time to do that, time to repent, time to get rid of their false hopes and trust only the Lord. But for Judah, they are to hear again in this message, the heart of God. Did you notice that the whole message to Assyria is introduced with one word? The word, woe. It was how the message against Israel ended. The messages get woven together with a cry of sorrow. That's what it is. See, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish the the coming of a great kingdom of peace. And that same zeal grieves over the wickedness of Assyria and the punishment that must come to them. And, And Judah is to reflect on this and hear it and say, what kind of God is this? What kind of God has all sovereign power and total justice and who grieves over the punishment he brings to sin? You see, Judah and us, we are invited to look deeper and deeper into the sovereignty of God, to look deeper and deeper into his meticulous and exhaustive governance of all things and say, what does he do with his sovereignty? We asked it about Assyria, didn't we? What does Assyria do with their strength? Puny in comparison. What about God with his infinite strength? What does he do? With his infinite strength, he brings in a kingdom of justice and peace. In his infinite strength, he establishes a world where people can live in love and light and life. So he punishes wickedness to make way for peace. And and it leaves us caught in the headlights. If we hear right, it leaves us startled with our hearts exposed before God, our sins measured by his holy gaze. We can't stand before him. Is there any hope? A rescue from the anger of God that comes towards all of us well in chapter 9 verse 12 and 17 and 21 and 10 verse 4 there's a repeated declaration that the hand of the Lord's anger raised over sinners is waiting to fall in, in our passage we heard that anger described as a rod and a club it is that same rod of anger the Lord holds over us over all who have sinned and fallen short of his glory. It is that rod of anger that must fall in order to open up the way to his kingdom of peace. But if we listen closely, when chapter 10 verse 5 speaks of the rod and the club, it repeats the words from chapter 9 verse 4. They're translated as the bar and the rod, but it's the same words. Chapter 9 verse 4 told us of the the bar and the rod of oppression being smashed by God. Because the only escape from the judgment of god isn't to run to assyria it's not to look inside yourself it's not to try and do better and try harder the only escape from the judgment of god is to flee to god the only way for the rod of his anger to be smashed it can only be broken when it's when its purpose has been fulfilled the purpose of the rod of anger is to punish sin and for the upraised hand of god's wrath to fall And once it falls, once the blow is dealt, it need rise no more. And the rod can be shattered and gone. But but how can it be shattered and gone when we deserve to be shattered under it? Well, to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The Emmanuel child. The human child who is called mighty God. God himself who has come to live among us. God of infinite glory and majesty who condescends to be born as a human child. He never stops being God, but becoming in the Bethlehem manger what he was not, the God-man. Born for us, born for us with specific divine intention. You read about it in Acts chapter 4 when it says that when the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, the, the action had the intention of sinful people who plotted and planned his murder. But also, it says they did what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Decided beforehand, as we see in passages like Isaiah chapter 9, which says the government will be upon his shoulders. The rod of oppression, the rod of God's anger that should be on our shoulders. He takes government. He takes responsibility to do whatever it takes. And what it takes is for his perfect life to go under the falling hand of God's wrath. For his perfect life to be crushed for our sin. As Isaiah 53 will say, the punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. He to bring in his reign of peace, for us to be able to enjoy a place in his kingdom of peace, he took the punishment in our place. And the rod of divine anger was smashed. It was broken at Calvary, splintered to sawdust at the empty tomb. That's how God uses his infinite power. He uses his infinite power to hold out his hope to all who will believe. He holds out the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can put our trust in him. And we sit here Sunday the 3rd of December 2023. These Difficult and dangerous things put before us in God's word. And I suspect that the closing lines of bohemian rhapsody whisper in our hearts, nothing really matters. Maybe we lost concentration a while ago. We're already distracted by other things. Minds drifted ahead. The week ahead looming unchanged by our encounter with God and his word. Because deep down we sing, nothing really matters. But you know, might it just be, might it just be that the God who wielded Assyria like a stick, God with that all-encompassing providential power, might it be that he organized that Isaiah record this message and that a passage was transmitted through the ages under the supreme governance of the Holy Spirit so that on this very Sunday morning as we sit here, we hear this passage and we have our attention put upon it Because this is how God has planned to advance his good purposes in your life. Now if the kingdom is coming, and the Lord Jesus says the kingdom has come, the king has come, the kingdom is here, he says. If that kingdom is to be populated with those who hear his warning and turn and repent, then today this warning has reached your ears. Calling you to turn and to repent. You can harden your heart. You can shrug your shoulders and say, deep down, nothing really matters. Or you can ask the Lord Jesus for mercy. You know, perhaps some of us sitting here, we, we've just become so dulled. Like, when his word wakes us up from our slumber. Now, some perhaps here this morning, we did once call on the name of Jesus Christ. But it's just gone. I know, it's so diluted. Now perhaps if we, if, we, if we take an honest look, we've, we've somehow adopted a kind of shrunken, domesticated version of God. He's no better than the non-entities that Assyria saw in the nations. The God has become to us no more than a kind of figurehead, impotent, not worthy of our adoration. It's why our praise is so dry. And our prayers, we don't, we don't really bother much, do we, really? Not with any fervency or intensity, because this God in our imagination is not really able to do anything. And and to pray for his kingdom to come, it doesn't really excite us because we don't really care about his kingdom coming because our dreams are set on something else. And Isaiah chapter 10, it tells us of the God who holds all things. Of the God who holds all people, us included, accountable for what goes on in our hearts. And a God who holds out all hope to any. Any who will trust in Jesus. Nothing really matters. Does any of that matter to you today? Let's take a moment of quiet. Ask the Lord to search your heart. God Almighty, please would you have mercy on us today. Amen. Uh, As we continue to respond to what the Lord says to us in his word, we're going to sing together. When the musicians are ready, behold our God.